Now's the sign. Really what I want to talk about today is that we talk about, uh, uh, we have in the last 20 or 30 years of teaching Buddhist traditions in the United States, we've made a difference, I talked about the difference between loving kindness as a practice and mindfulness as a practice, and I've long told my friends that on my tombstone, if I have a tombstone, I wanted to say mindfulness is the same as loving kindness. And that could be my, my. I'm I'm carrying it on already, and I'm not even dead, uh, because I really firmly believe that it's all about love, and they're both about love, and making an artificial dichotomy between them is extra and confusing. So, in order to be super dramatic, instead of saying I just believe that, as I want it on my tombstone. So then people can say, you know, but that's just a little bit of my hyper-dramatic business. But it's true. Anyway, that's what I want to talk about. And also because uh, later this month, there's going to be a, um, uh, that research retreat on uh, meta practice. Is anybody here going to be on that research retreat? Ah, there you go. Just one person. Just one person. It was hard to get in, you know. You had to be a certain demographic, and you had to be a certain age, and you had to be... It was hard to get in. I didn't know that we'd get 50 people who fit all those things, but we got actually 100 and picked out 50 of them. So I'm glad that you'll be there. And I think it will prove that... uh, Keeping a sweetheart is good for you and makes you feel better. I think we know that already, but now we are doing some research so it can validate it in the scientific community. But I think that's... And so one of the things that I'm going to talk about is it's all about love. So I've been thinking about that a lot. But I think it's love that's that's, uh, really situated and coming out of really profound wisdom. And the most profound wisdom from the point of view of the Buddha is that life is difficult. It's not supposed to be without challenge. The nature of the thing is its challenge. So one of, I wanted to start with, uh, I was looking for a, a particular poem this morning, and I did find it, I'll read it for you later, in a book by Billy Collins called Picnic Lightning. But the preface to the book called Picnic Lightning is from uh, Beckett out of Texts for Nothing. And the preface is, we spend our life trying to bring together in the same instant a ray of sunshine and a free bench. (laughs) That make any sense to you? I love that, a ray of sunshine and a free bench. You could sit down comfortably. So what, do you, so what does it mean? Most of the time there's a sunshine, but there's no bench to sit down. Sit down on a bench, the sunshine moves. <laughs> the word that the Buddha used for life is challenging. He didn't say challenging. He said life is dukkha, uh, which is variously translated as suffering, but it doesn't really mean that. Dukkha comes from the same root of a word in the early language that the Buddha spoke that means uh, it has to do with an axle of a uh, wooden horse cart, the axle that the wheel fits into. And the axle is never quite smooth. And it it refers to the kind of feeling that you have when you ride in a wooden horse cart over rocky terrain. So that's what that word, life is riding in a wooden horse cart on a rocky terrain. So, metta is the same as mindfulness. If you think about 
what kind of an attitude would be good to have if you really got it that life is like that? You know, it's not supposed to be better than that. You know, it's okay that it's that's just the way it is. Uh, there was a line from a Beatles store, a song that years ago that said, uh, uh, "Some say life is very strange, but I say compared to what, you know." <laughs> You know, this is it. This is it. So then I, I keep thinking, as I often do that, I tell you, well, I thought I'd start here, but then I thought this, I'll start with that, then I thought this, I'll start with that. I should always start halfway down the page because I always have a lot of little scribbling on the top. I From time to time, I tell you about... Um, uh, a, a re in the last decade, a woman died who was a Zen teacher, an independent of a large tradition Zen teacher, but a very noted Zen teacher, lots of followers. People admired her. And she was said to have said in her final breath as she was dying, the Zen teachers, they save up their final, really deepest understanding, their pith comment for the last breath. And she was said to have said, thank you very much. I have no complaints. And I find that very, very touching and very inspiring uh, and very wise. First of all, when I think about it, I think, well, I'd like to say that at the end. Thank you very much. I will, I hope, if I have my wits about me, say thank you very much. I love you. But saying I have no complaints is great because it doesn't mean that nothing ever wasn't to my liking. Nothing ever went wrong. But it is the wisdom that complaining is bringing extra suffering on an already ungrate situation. Something's not great. It's about how to not resent something. Sometimes things aren't great. Sometimes you order something from Land's End, it comes with an entirely different wrong size or something. So you can, and you might even go to a complaint department if you go up in Petaluma, wherever you go, but you don't have to complain. The thing could be, the, I mean, the situation when you get there is, I ordered this from Land's End, it's the wrong size. Can you fix it, please? And they fix it. I mean, everything extra, like every time I order from Land's End, it always comes <laughs> like that. I bet it's shoddy merchandise, and I bet it's packed by an automaton or a machine or a robot. Or can't those people read? I mean, there's a thousand different things that you could think about it other than this is not my size. So I'll go to Petaluma. I'll go to Sears or wherever change it is. I think it's Sears that changes the land's end. And they change the land's end, finished. But it's about how to avoid frazzing up your mind into some resentful, complaining tone. I have, sometimes I think about that when I think about it, it was a Midwestern kind of a convention when you said to people, how are you? They say, can't complain. And it usually means everything's okay. But I think it's that actually it's a bigger uh, wisdom than that. I can't complain because if I complained, whatever troubles I have would already be worse. <laughs> and the complaining, can't complain. No complaining. I would like to fix my mind so it didn't complain ever. Anybody didn't have a complaint in their mind so far today with anything? Did you think, oh, no, this wouldn't count as a complaint. No, it couldn't possibly count. Like it was a torrential downpour and, and you even thought, it's going to uh, rain out the game. That wouldn't be a complaint. We would be happy for a protect, protect, downpour, yeah. How not to meet anything with resentment and with the idea of it should have been different. They should have sent the right size. They, I, I told you several times in the last year, I think, I have seriously tried to take the word should out of my speaking vocabulary. When I catch myself in the middle of a sentence, I should have called, I should have sent that in earlier. What I really mean is I wish I had sent that in earlier, but I didn't. I sent it in later. <laughs> if I say I should, it's already just making myself wrong. Trying not to make yourself wrong. 
your mind feels better if you don't make yourself wrong. You read all kinds of pedagogy books, and the best teachers I've known don't make anybody ever wrong. They say, John, I'm, I, I really want to work with you about this, this report that you've written. I'm so impressed. The other day when you wrote a report, it was really straight on. I thought, this is John, really, this is his capability. This doesn't quite match it, so I wonder how I can help you work it up to that. But in the contents of respecting John and his potential, you help him to get this thing up to where it was. Uh, you don't ever say to somebody, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it hurts the mind and it makes people frightened. Did you ever have a teacher that was excellent on not saying everything, on not, on not making you feel wrong? No. No. <laughs> we have a bunch of teachers in here. Vicki, do you do that? Always say, always say in a, in a good way? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. That's great. That's great. That's great. Neither of them is a put down. Neither of them is a put down. And one of them's actually a gift. Let me help you with that. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was how do you have a mind that doesn't have problems with things, that doesn't make them into a problem? And um, some of you, but not all of you, uh, were probably here a month or so ago when I uh, I talked about uh, my uh, my son's mother-in-law who who died who was not here when I talked about my son's mother-in-law who died just a few people how many people heard about my incredible son's mother-in-law my 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 son's incredible mother-in-law so to do it very briefly my son's incredible mother-in-law died at age 84, six months after she got the diagnosis for pancreas cancer and turned down all treatment other than possible palliative treatment, which was a wise thing to do at 84. And she died, predictably, six months later. She just didn't have a lot of pain at all. She was never on morphine. She walked around until the last day or two. Uh, she just got littler and littler and shriveled her and shriveled her and ate less and less, but never said a complaining word about it. And the whole time, she didn't say, I'm so sorry to be dying. She didn't say, I'm sorry I'm going to miss the birth of great-grandchildren. She didn't say, I'm sorry I got sick. Uh, she just talked about what she could still do. She had her daughters take her on trips to Yosemite, where she'd been, and Hawaii, where she hadn't been, and the White House, where she hadn't been. And she enjoyed them all very much, even though the last one was in a wheelchair. And then she came home and was too weak to go anywhere. And when I visited her a week or so before she died, I told her that the, the uh, uh, quality that I most admired in her was her ability throughout the 30 years that I've known her to never say anything um, uh, unpositive about anybody. And in the middle of driving her somewhere in Los Angeles, terrible traffic, she'd say, look, it's remarkable. So many people in cars going places, you know. <laughs> I don't know how many people say that in the middle of Los Angeles <laughs> traffic. She just, whenever is heard a discouraging word. It's like someone taught her that song. But, you know, she's Latina. She grew up in, in El Salvador. She doesn't have that country-western background. <laughs> but she just didn't do it. She said, here comes my family, this one. I love them so much. They're so great. Here comes this one. I love them so much. They're wonderful. You'll love them. Here comes my sister-in-law, Mirna. She's a little difficult sometimes, Mirna. But, you know, She's had such a hard life. She got such bad breaks. You could really understand. Sometimes if she's a little bit short, you know, she's really doing excellent with the kinds of things that have happened to her in her life. She just put everybody in a good story. Had no bad stories on anybody in her life. Who here has no bad stories on anybody in their life? <laughs> Would it be terrific to have no bad stories? 
I am trying very much. I don't have such bad stories right now. I don't know. I have, you know, if you ask me, do you get more excited? Do you like some people more than other people? I do. I do like some people. I think she liked some people better than other people. But she didn't get bad stories around people as if she knew intuitively that it messes up your mind. I asked her, I told her about this episode, that one, that one, that one. She said, yeah, I guess I do that. I said, since when do you do that? How do you learn to do that? She said, I don't know. I always did it. And her sister, who was visiting from El Salvador, she said, that's right. She was born that way. She always did it that way. So here we have. It's a, it's a mind possibility. Some people are born with it. How many people here were born with it? I think it's actually quite a rare gene. You have it, you think. Yeah, you also, Lynn. I came that way. Yeah, you came that way. See, I actually think that's wonderful because I actually think it's a, it's a fairly glorious genius form of genius to be able, from a self-preservation point of view, to organize your life so that, organize your mind around any piece of news that it's not devastating. That you could say, well, this is because one of the, the fundamental wisdom, if we were going to say, what's the Buddhist wisdom behind this or the any wisdom behind this, is that we're not in charge of life. Life goes on. Things happen. And to have a, like an elastic mind that's able to say, well, this isn't what I wanted, but you know what? What I've got, what am I going to do with it? It's the, it really, life hands you lemons, you make lemonade. This is happening, okay, we'll make this out of this. But not to be startled into shrinking up. The startled part is really the key part. The startled part clouds the mind, and that's the part I want to talk about, practice. The startled part clouds the mind, and when the mind is clouded, we don't make the best decisions. For those few and rare people who have that genius capability of being able to say, well, okay, I'll do this or that now, it's great. For those people who don't have the capability to be able to notice that they don't have that capability and have ways of working so that they train the mind more and more to have that capability. I mentioned sometime, some months ago, uh, a recollection I had of my friend um, Sharon Salzberg and I. Sharon was my original loving-kindness teacher. And this must have happened 20 or 25 years ago. I was sitting with Sharon in her living room in Barry in Massachusetts. And uh, I said to Sharon, I'm, I'm 10, 15 years probably older than she is. I said, Sharon, what do, you, what do you think we'll be doing when we're old women? And she said, I don't know. She said, uh, maybe, I've, she said, I guess we'll just be sitting around uh, praying for people. So I, that's exactly what she said. And I remember it because it's exactly, it makes sense. It's very important that she said, first of all, I don't know, because you never know. Uh, I guess which means it's likely that, we'll just be sitting around praying for people. And I don't think she meant just in the sense of insignificantly be doing that because it's not much of a thing to do, but just in terms of that's be, that'll be what we'll do. We won't do other things. We'll just do that, sit around and pray for people. And praying for people, as in my lexicon anyway, means blessing people. Because when you're praying for people, you're praying for good things. You're not praying that bad things will happen to them. May you live long. May you thrive. May you be happy. May you get well. May you, um, may you not suffer. Because th there's a difference between, uh, you know, may you be well. Of course we want people to be well, but sometimes they can't be well. They're not in charge of the well or not well. But may you not suffer. Because that is a possibility. You could say, I'm not well, but that's what I've got, but I'm not suffering. You know, it's, it's a difference between why me, ah, 
and why not me? You know, I, 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 I went to get a, um, every second year bone scan a week ago, for my which is good to do for your bones when you're old. And when you go in the waiting room with the people waiting for the x-rays and the scans, it's full of all kinds of people, maybe a couple other old people waiting for bone scans for bone densities, but children who are bald and people who are otherwise in some way uh, disabled, and you don't know what's gonna ha what they're getting scanned about, and you look around and you think, wow, there's a lot of things happening here. And may all these people be at ease. And thank goodness that we have people who make bone scans and who make treatment protocols and who administer treatment protocols. You know, this, these are fragile bodies. I heard somebody yesterday giving a talk, talking about they're, they're really fragile bodies. If uh, something hits them too hard, they fall over and they're, something hurts them, they, they die. Unless he can do something about it, sometimes he can't. And on the other hand, you say, well, it's remarkable with such fragile bodies. Many, many people live a long time. But I like that. At the time when she said that to me, maybe we'll just sit around and pray for people. I thought, well, that's a really sweet thing to say. It'll Maybe it means that we'll be sweet old women or something, or <laughs> that we won't be able to do much other things when we're old women. But over the years, actually, when I was writing this yesterday and putting it together, I don't think it's just a, an idea that's a sweet idea. I think it's an idea that's a, a profound idea. And I think maybe the most profound idea that we would have gotten to the place in life that we only wished well for people, that that was what our mind was filled up in. I remember um, the woman Deepama, who was teacher to my teachers, um, you met Deepa as well, Maria, didn't you? Oh, yes, you were at my house when Deepa was... Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> I remember, we just remembered that together, that uh, Joseph Goldstein and Maria Monroe here were the people who were around Deepa Ma at that time in India, and they brought her to the United States. I've, I've described it as, uh, sometimes you see rock band on tour. This was Deepa Ma on tour in the United States. She was the most accomplished meditator that any of my teachers knew. And they brought her to the United States and brought her around to their different communities so people could come and see her and be with her. And she stayed in my house for a week. And I guess Maria did too. Uh, I think so. Yeah. I remember... It was a long time ago. I remember a jumble of things. I remember what foods she liked to eat, but uh, I guess because I had something to do with the shopping. But um, she was the one who said, "I." Someone said, "What's in your mind, Deepama?" She says, "Never anything in my mind, but um, equanimity and concentration and loving kindness." Well, those are three, I think so. So, anybody here would, I would take that. <laughs> Nothing in your mind but equanimity, concentration, and loving kindness. Equanimity is pretty much, um, uh, is relevant to concentration. It's not the same thing. I think concentration sustains equanimity and uh the equanimity sustains wisdom because it keeps the mind open and the wisdom, uh, when the mind is completely open and non-resistant, it's able to see most profoundly that we all are in the same state of coming and going through this, these, these lives and different bodies and different stories and different agendas and different stuff, but fundamentally all of us struggling to be in the ray of sunshine with a bench there at the same time. And mostly it's a little bit off the kilter of that. Still looking for the synchrony of the bench and the light. So I remember that. I would love to have a mind like that, that was like that all the time. And my sense 
is that by continually having that as my goal, the more I, the more I would be uh, moved to be practicing loving-kindness, either with the formal ways of making blessings for people or with the um, implicit way of keeping the loving-kindness there by addressing any kind of aversion as it arose, being attentive to aversion as it arose so that I could counter it by seeing through it, by understanding that it's temporal, by understanding that I just got startled, it's nothing really, it's an ephemeral event. I don't need to give it a lot of attention. In fact, I think that that may be the... Um, That may be the important piece of uh, understanding behind the meditation instruction that I gave this morning where I said, uh, I used to give more meditation instructions in terms of try to, con try to bring the attention back to one particular object. It's not a bad instruction. I don't mind when people give it as an instruction. For me, I rather say, try to keep your mind completely at ease and relaxed. When it's not, because it's gotten frightened or startled, it's clammed up, it's become filled with aversion, then bring the attention to one neutral object, like the breath, because then it'll settle it down, it'll calm it down. Physiologically, it works that way. Bringing your attention to the breath takes your attention off the story your mind was about to tell yourself, and then the mind settles down and you feel better. Think of a situation where aversion might arise. Or think of a situation where even lust might arise, which also startles the mind. And think at the same time of the Buddha's teaching on wise effort. That's like think three things at the same time. The Buddha's teaching of wise effort is making an effort at every moment that there's a, a, an arising in the mind to choose in the direction of wholesome mind states and to not choose in the direction of unwholesome mind states. So I'm walking down, let's hypothetically say, suppose I go to the mall to pick up something that I have to pick up there. I have a specific job. I'm walking down between uh, Nordstrom's and uh, Macy's on my way to X place to pick up one specific <coughs> item and come home. And I pass in the window exactly the dress that I need to wear to the wedding in Chicago next week. Now, I actually have packed for the wedding in Chicago. I actually have the dress for the wedding in Chicago all packed. So that in the window is not exactly the dress. It's now become exactly the dress <laughs> that I need to take to Chicago because it suddenly strikes my fancy. It looks just right. It's not mine. It's after all, I have mine many years. They probably saw that at the last wedding, the whole family said, da, da, da. And I'm continuing on to my event to pick up my thing. But meanwhile, I've left my attention back in the window with that dress because it's gotten sidelined by lust. I need that dress. <laughs> I didn't need the dress before I saw it. It existed in the world, but not in my mind. Anybody ever have that happen to you? <laughs> you ever are eating a Dunkin' Donuts what, that you didn't need five minutes ago, but you passed the place and it smelled? Or a piece of pizza that you passed a place and it smelled and you went in. And, oh, it's lunchtime. I'm so hungry. I need that pizza. That what happens is you see something and the mind says, oh, I need that. It lights all up and it gets confused in the moment. Now, it's not to say that a Dunkin' Donuts or a pizza is a bad thing ever. It might be lunchtime. It might be food that you can tolerate well. It's not... It, Every once in a while, a Dunkin' Donuts, every once in a while, a pizza. But it might not be what you want to do now, and then you might be late. Or, or you might want to say, if they are things you shouldn't be eating, or you're actually on a diet, or I actually already have a dress for Chicago, so I don't need this one. If before that goes into place, I say to myself, wait a minute, just let's stop right here. Take a breath. That phrase, I need that dress, that was just a thought, not an imperative, it was just a thought. And it was a thought that arose 
out of the pleasure of, that's a nice looking dress. Wow, it would look good on me. Everybody would say, Sylvia looks great. You're keeping yourself so well. All the fantasies about it. It doesn't take into consideration, I, you know, maybe I'll get a headache and a migraine in the morning of the wedding. I won't go. Maybe people won't say. Maybe it's not that attractive. Maybe I'll go in. They won't have my size. I already have a dress and I don't need that. So in the, you see it as here was a lust, pleasure at looking at that dress and having the fantasy about it. Now let's have a moment of thought. Do we need it? Probably not. Okay, should we go in and look at it? Probably not. That would be also problematic. Yeah. One way, I've tried it on and I looked terribly unattractive and then my whole fantasy of everybody would have thought I was gorgeous would <laughs> demoralize me. Probably if it looked great, then I'd have to struggle with want it, not want it. Forget about the dress, go on. And you go on and it disappears like a, like a, like a, what's the word, chimera, a, a fairy, a phantom, an appearance. It, what, really, it's nothing. It's a bubble of thought, that dress. <coughs> Just go. Or you're going along and uh, what, what happened? could happen that you could not like it? You pass some mother coming by with a, a, a stroller and a child who's having a bad time. and She speaks to them angrily, and it hurts your feelings. And you think to yourself, that was bad. I should really, I could, I could go back there and I could tell her what to do, and I could have something good to say. And I could say to this person next to me, hey, did you see that? Maybe we should go and do something. <laughs> Or you could stop and say, wait a minute, is this the right time to do this? The motive is right. It really was unpleasant. I'm sad about it. I'm moved to sadness. Is this going to help that mother at this moment? Could I just take a breath and wish her well and the child well? Maybe I'll see her later on in this mall and I'll say something like, this is a lovely place to shop, isn't it? Not about how she should do the child caring. In the meantime, the point for me is that each of those times can either send my mind into a flurry of thoughts that confuse it, that give birth to new thoughts. Look at the new styles this year. Look at how we are really condemned to be looking at these styles by the style magazines all over the place. We should wear the same things always. Look at the Amish. They're pretty smart, by the way. But you can do endless, endless on that. Well, you could do endless. I should write a letter to the uh, IJ about da, 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 something rather about wh what I know from my great vantage point of child raising, which is not that much, I discover. Anyway, or I could say to myself, ah, I was startled. I was startled. Now take a breath. Let's do what we came to do. The whole world is startling. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, which is really a piece of good wisdom. I'm not in charge of the world. I don't have to edify the world or shop the world or do anything. All I have to do is keep my own heart good, so I'll meet somebody else and I'll do the right thing because my mind will not be all confused. I'm convinced that Sharon's remark about, oh, we'll sit around and pray for people. We'll just sit around and pray for people is really the most profound wisdom. I think that it keeps your own heart in a loving mood. And that that, that loving mood is actually, first of all, it's the cause of, cause of your own self. It's the cause of your own happiness. And it's the taproot of compassion, really. Because if I am at ease and happy, and then I look at this mother being harsh with her child, I don't think, ah, oh, terrible mother. I think, oh dear, she's so tired. You know, she's doing this. Maybe, maybe I'll pass her. And then if I pass her, I'll say, it's a, good for you going out with two babies. It's a hard thing to go out with two babies. Maybe I'll say something good if I pass her again. And maybe I'll remind myself that the world is pretty mercantile and I'm not going to change shopping centers or fashion magazines. May all people choose wisely. May we use the resources of the world wisely. That it would be profoundly good for me to have that kind of mind. 
So what I was going to start with, but what I'll end up I'm ending with, is I was cleaning my closets recently. By the way, if you came in late, there's a lot of books out there. And please take some books home. They're books that I no longer... They're books that I didn't read in the last year and probably won't read in the next year. So they should be on somebody else's bookshelf, like the clothes that I didn't wear last year and I'm not immediately wearing should be in someone else's closet and they're on their way there. So on your way out, take those of those that you want. And the rest of them, Miriam is going to take to the Tiburon Library, which will sell them and buy books with them. And when I'm here, on any date that I'm here, you can, since I didn't tell Donald about it, let's have that thing there. It's a generosity way of spreading some stuff around. Bring whatever you want. I was cleaning my closets recently, and I found in a stuffed-away corner of a closet a t-shirt that must be 30, uh, a sweatshirt that is probably 30 years old that I probably got in the days of my teaching yoga because it's a little smaller than I am. And it has one of those clever logos on the front. And it says, try meditation. It's not what you think. Uh, and I think that it meant, what do you think it meant? Huh? Whatever you imagine it to be, that's not what meditation is. Whatever you imagine it to be is not what meditation is. or. Meditation isn't what you're thinking. It's not necessarily a relaxation technique. I think it means it's not necessarily anything, you know, like it's navel gazing or that it's, um, or any of the things that anybody said. Uh, it's not necessarily what you think, but it could be a million other things. Uh, and I thought, well, I, I can give this away. First of all, I don't wear logo sweatshirts so much anymore. And second of all, I'm a little bigger than I was in that time. And third of all, I have to get a new sweatshirt that says try meditation. It is about what you think. <laughs> because I think that what I am trying to do is make the habits of my mind into loving thoughts. What if I only thought loving thoughts? Not only deeper, Ma, my my late mother, my late Mahatenista, the late mother-in-law of my son. There's no word in English, by the way, for mother-in-law of my offspring. There's a word in Yiddish for that, so I can tell you. So, But anyway, the late mother-in-law of my son, she managed to do it. Deepa Ma managed to do it. You could have a mind that only thought good things. It would be the source of a lot of happiness because it would be like living in a great neighborhood. You have no enemies if you live in a great neighborhood. You could be relaxed. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to carry a pistol in your purse. <laughs> you could come home late at night. You could wake up in the middle of the night and not be frightened if your mind was completely a good neighborhood. So it is what, it is what you think. I think actually it's closer to say, to talk about um, uh, the word visuddhimagga, which means the path of purification. And it's called the purification of the mind. And I think it's the purification of the mind of all of those thoughts and habits that cause pain. It's not what happens to you that causes suffering. It's what your mind does with it that causes the suffering. I, you know, when I, when I wrote this down yesterday, preparing for today, I was thinking, uh, you could just be able to say, fully, this happened. And out of the recesses of 70 years ago, how many people here are over 70 years old? Just me? Oh, no. A few people. Okay. So there was a radio program on Sunday nights called Duffy's Tavern. Anybody? You heard Duffy's Tavern, Okay. <laughs> Marked it also. You remember? The phone rings. Duffy's Tavern is a tavern. Phone rings. Person picks it up. Says in a very heavy Brooklyn accent, 
welcome to Duffy's Tavern, where the elite meet to eat. Uh, this is so-and-so speaking. Duffy's not here. That was the opening comment. The elite meet to eat. This is Tommy talking. Duffy's not here. Duffy was never there. That was the joke. But then he would hear, and it was radio, not television, and things would something often happen, and he would say, do you remember, Mark, what he'd say? It was a standard remark when bad things happen. He'd say, what a revolting development this is. And all of this came back into my mind. You remember that? No, but some comedian or somebody used to say that. The life of Riley. Life of Riley. Li maybe Life of Riley said that. Uh, what a well, either Life of Riley or Duffy's Tavern, but what a revolting development yeah. this is. But they said it in a very calm tone of voice, like this is just a revolting development. And I thought, that's it, that we should be able to have something happen. Should say what a revolting development this is, but it doesn't. But it doesn't upset the mind. It's just a revolting development. My my uh, my late mother-in-law would open the door. We'd be leaving the house to go someplace. She'd open the door. It'd be raining. Hadn't been raining before. We'd open the door. It's raining. And she'd say, "Just my luck. It's raining." Like God waited for her to be going out, and it was just on behalf of her that it rained. Or you could say, "What a revolting development! It's raining. I didn't want to go out in the rain." But it's not about me. It's not about me. There are some revolting developments that happen. It's not about me. That would clear up a lot of the. Backlash of you, you do that to me, I'll be mad at you, God, raining on me, or whatever it is. It's what the mind does with it. <laughs> I was thinking of events that happened. Somebody told me recently of having gone through a great deal of uh, preparation and planning and organization to get millions of photos of her and Tyler and daughter's life up to age 13 uh, put into a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a disc or a file so that they could play it at that child's, at the party at the child's, following the child's bat mitzvah. All that planning got happening, came to showing the, the movie now of the child's life in retrospect, plug it in, turn it on, doesn't work. So, <laughs> thinking of the ability to say, what a revolting development this is. <laughs> say, okay, because well, there are little revolting developments and there are big revolting developments. You listen to the news, Ebola is now here and now there, and what's going on in Syria is going on in Syria, and what's going on in the Middle East is going on in the Middle East, and what's going on everywhere, and what's going on in inner cities in the United States, and what's going on in Ferguson. A lot of it is very genuinely revolting. And how to be able to hold that in a mind that doesn't make enemies. But the whole thing, I think, is the habit of the mind to not make enemies. Here comes my uh, sister-in-law, Mirna. She could be difficult sometime, but you know, Mirna, da-da-da-da-da-da. These are all the causes and causes and conditions that caused Myrna to be like this. So it's not Myrna's fault. I, the, the, the talk that I heard yesterday was a talk which you could see too because it's on YouTube. And it's a two, it's a, it's a hour and some minutes long talk about um, compassionate, understanding compassion for therapists in which nobody is wrong. It's compassion-based care. Whoever is having whatever they're having, they couldn't not have it. Um, and his name is Paul Gilbert. Paul Gilbert. So if you, uh, you, you Google the YouTube or YouTube the YouTube, of Paul Gilbert, it's a talk he gave within the last week um, in Palo Alto. And I thought, well, I'll just watch a few minutes. Somebody sent it to me. And I watched the whole hour and a half. It was very good. He's a very good speaker. And it's a, a very, it's, it's quite compelling. 
And really what I want to come to in the last two minutes and maybe take it up when we come back, because I think I've made the point that it's not what happens to you in the life, it's what your mind does with what happens to you, what it thinks about it or doesn't think about it, what it doesn't let the... That's different from thinking and, and ruminating. We think about things. We ruminate on things and we exacerbate them usually. Kind of make them into habits of the mind. This always happens to me. It always happens to me. I always choose wrong. And then we get to have a story in our life about I'm the person who always chooses wrong. Give me an opportunity. I picked the wrong man. I picked the wrong woman. I do the da da da. I this and that and the other. It's really, uh, it's really sad. Uh, other people than I have had the idea of imagining that um, there's somebody behind you who, uh, like your best friend, who follows you be right behind your ear and all day long says to you, what a stupid thing you just did. That was really dumb. Don't, well, I can't imagine you wore that. Why did you wear that? That looks terrible. We wouldn't have a friend like that going around with us all day, but we frequently have our mind going around with us all day talking to us in a bad way like that. And to be able to notice that it is about what you think. It's not what you think, it is what you think, really. So I'll remind you about, uh, uh, this is uh, the latest issue of the Shambhala Sun. Did I bring it in to show you last time? It's very funny. I don't know if the whole thing is funny. The thing that's funny in it is I wrote an article. The article is not, I think the article is good. But the illustrations are funny, and I'll show you some of them. First of all, the son wanted me to write an article on the five hindrance energies of lust and lust and aversion and boredom and restlessness and doubt. And you probably have heard me over the years tell about your tires get stolen and uh, some people uh, go buy silk pajamas because to get over there upset. So that's lust, and some people ball out the the, the uh, uh, building manager because they get mad. Some people get lusty and greedy. Some people get mad. Some people get bored or exhausted. Some people get restless and nervous. Some people have a lot of self-doubt. And the, and the, the drawings are really uh, tremendous of this woman looking at her tires are stolen. And you can see that she's just been shopping and got all kinds of shopping bags of stuff. And this is one of my favorite ones. This guy comes out and finds that his tires have been stolen. And he has a picture of rage on his face, and it's very, I think it's very well done. This man over here, who um, representing sloth and torpor, is sitting on the floor next to his tireless car. Uh, so exhausted that he can't go to work. And this person over here uh, is um, terrified. <laughs> it's a very good picture of terrified because uh, he is thinking, today they stole the tires, probably tomorrow they'll steal the car. And this person who thinks, once again, I made a mistake, is filled with doubt. What I thought was really funny is that um, after the whole article, I included a story which I probably told you here about my trip to the airport where my flight was canceled and I had to come home. And so part of that story, uh, and I told the story, and they took the story out of the article and they ran the story separately on the bottom with its own picture. Uh, which I think was a very good editorial move. Anyway, the story was about going to the airport and having the, tra the plane that I was supposed to fly down to visit my ailing Mahatenista uh, was canceled, and it ended up that I had to come back the next day. But at one point, I was told to go stand on a line and change my ticket, and the line was very long. And... Uh, I was concerned that by the time the line would move up to the place where I could change my ticket, they, that next flight would have taken off. Um, so the person behind me online said, it'd be very wise while you're standing here online, 
phone the airlines. Plenty of people phone the airlines while online, and if you get an, an operator, an agent first, you can change your ticket online. They can change it, and then you don't have to wait for the agent here. So I'm changing, I get, I phone, and I'm there online, and they say, your call is very important to you. Please stay on the line. We'll get with you as soon as we can. And it elaborates how I feel about that. Anyway, uh, so here's a picture, and I'm, I read the story, and I think, oh, how clever. They've just taken it out and put it as a separate story. And then I notice the illustration that they have of it, which I'll be happy to show you. But you see there's a, an agent and people on a line. A lot of people on a line. There's a very small person <laughs> in the middle of a line with a red jacket, <laughs> noticeably smaller than everybody, with a perturbed face, talking on a cell phone. And I looked at it and I thought, ah, that's me. <laughs> who, in my opinion, in this rendition, not only looks unhappy, but looks like Madeleine Albright, <laughs> who is not a bad-looking or unskilled old lady, but still, he why you pass it around? It's funny. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is funny. We could just all laugh in, adv in advance of seeing it. Let's all laugh. Uh, I, I think I'm not here next week because I am in Chicago in the dress <laughs> that I already have packed because I'm not getting another one. <laughs> and I won't be here the next week, nor will Donald, because the both of us are teaching this retreat it's going to prove that doing loving-kindness practice all the time really produces oxytocin and a feeling of joy and happiness in the mind. But uh, I will be back after that and uh, for several weeks. It, it all works out. Sometimes I seem to be not here very much, but it actually, Donald assures me that we're here 50-50. We, we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll work it out like one month on, one month off in the year, because it's fine, however the way it is, it is. I have no complaints. That's an easy thing to have no complaints about. Uh, does that mean I won't see, I won't see you before Halloween? Okay. Before you go, make a sweep pass there and see if you need or anybody you know needs one of those, um, one of those uh, books. If you feel like, please do give a donation to the Homeless Basket, which is out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.